Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Job said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Amen. Peter said that we have a more sure word of prophecy. That's right. Moses said, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day. All the words of this law. Right. Because it is your life. Amen. The Bible. Learn it. Love it. Live it. Amen. I've got a real simple message. And I just now told you what it was. A very simple message. But I want us to look at some passages of scriptures to remind us of how precious this is. And what it has in it. Everything that we know about Jesus Christ. Everything that we know about our future. All the things that the Lord has done for us. We know from here. Do we love it like we should? And I want us to know it and love it so we can apply it and love it yet more and more. Amen. That's what we want to do. Right. You can be turning to Psalm 19. The word of God is perfect. It converts the soul. Amen. It's sure. It makes wise the simple. And I'm thankful for that because I'm a simple guy. But it makes wise the simple. The word of God, those commandments are right. It rejoices the heart. It's pure. It enlightens the eyes. It gives you true truth, the truth of the Lord. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And they're more precious than fine gold. Much more precious than fine gold. Amen. If you would, turn to Psalm 19 and let's look at, at uh, verse 7. And just follow along as I read through here. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Amen. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Right. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and keeping of them is great reward. Right. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgressions. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Psalm 19 tells us a lot about the word of God. It gives us some characteristics of the word of God that I've already talked about. The last verse there, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. Out of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Let the words of my mouth, everything that comes out of my mouth, let it match with what scripture says. Let my meditation be on the things that come from the word of God. And let it be acceptable to God. Let's look to the blessed man. Let's go to Psalm 1. The blessed man. Just a couple of pages over to your left. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the godly, of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Right. What is his delight? The law of the Lord. What does he meditate in day and night? The law of the Lord. We know this. I know I'm not telling you anything new. I understand that. But I want you guys to grasp hold of that. He meditates on it day and night. He delights in it. It's more than fine gold. What else do we know about this? He he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Whatsoever he do shall prosper. And I'm not talking about financial prosper. I'm talking about prosperity of the soul. We know that the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on God's word day and night. We also know that from the rest of this psalm, that the Lord approvingly knows the way of the righteous, but the ungodly shall perish. We know about the blessed man in Psalm 1. Everybody's familiar with him. Let's look at our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Did he know Scripture? You know he did. Did he use Scripture? You know he did. If you would, flip over to Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is where Jesus has just gone into the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He's He's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan is there to tempt him. I'm going to pick up in verse 3. This is Matthew 4, 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Now, just think about this. Again, he's been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And he's a man. Jesus Christ is a man, just like flesh and blood. And what did he say? He answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said. That's what we should conform our lives to. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and sitteth on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they dash thou dash thy foot against a stone. Well, guess what? Satan knows uh, Scripture also. He's quoting from Psalms 91. And guess what? He's true in what he's saying. And he's applying it to the correct person, Jesus Christ. He's the one who delights in his father. But Jesus also knew that he could just walk down. And he knew that there was a a verse that was more appropriate in this situation. What does he say? And Jesus said unto him, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You need to know the word of God when people rest and twist scripture. You need to know is what is the Lord's intention? But that's part of wisdom is knowing when to apply the words in the appropriate time. Yes. Right. Then again, in verse eight, the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and glory of them. And he said unto them, all these will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then said Jesus unto him, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou serve. Again. The Lord rebuked or responded to the devil three times with, it is written. How did Michael the archangel respond to uh, Satan over the body of Moses? It was the Lord rebuked thee. Right. If you would, switch to uh, 1 John 2.14. These are some encouraging words for some young men. Young men. It's encouraging for all of us, but I like this particularly for young men. 
Another thing that I want to do is encourage you to learn the word of the Lord. First John 2.14 says, I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you young men because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you and ye have overcome the wicked one. Why are the young men strong? Because the word of God abideth in them. That's it. Jesus also said, if a man love me, now listen to this. And I know this because it's in the scriptures. Anyway, Jesus said, if a man love me, he will keep my words and my father will love him. Amen. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Right. That's because they know the word of God. Along the theme of fathers to sons and teaching the next generation, let's look at Solomon and what he wrote to his son. If you would turn to Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22:17 is where I'm going. Just as a reminder, Solomon was the king of Israel and he's writing Proverbs to his son. Marie Proverbs 22 verses 17 through 21. Bow down thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thine heart unto my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall withal be fitted in thy lips that thy trust may be in the Lord. I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto them. So why did Solomon write this to his son? A couple of things. One is, he told him a couple of things here if you look at it. He says, apply thine heart unto knowledge. You're going to have to put a little bit of effort into it. But he said, apply your heart into it. He says, it's a pleasant thing for you to have them. It is a pleasant thing. Yes, there's work. But isn't there a reward with uh, the doing of a thing? For it's a pleasant thing if thou keep them with thee. And you want to have them so they'll be in your mouth so you can give them to those that the Lord sends your way. We also have the whole Bible that the Lord has given us. We want to have the Bible and we want to be able to tell the truth of the Bible to others, especially to the generation to come. Again, like I told you, I haven't told you anything new. If you turn to Psalm 119, Psalm 119, 97. The word of the Lord that we have is great to us. Do we love it like we should? Psalm 119, 97 through 104. Follow with me. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Doesn't that kind of sound like Psalm 1? Doesn't it sound like the blessed man? Through thy commandments, thou, through thy commandments, has made me wiser than my enemies, for they, the commandments... Are ever with me. That's right. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Right. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Amen. I have refrained my I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. So it sounds like he's right. a doer of the word and not just a hearer only. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. He learned the words. He applied the words. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Through thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. My focus is, is the word of God sweet to you? Do you meditate on it? Do you love it like you should? Moses said, set your hearts unto all the words which I testify unto you this day, because it is your life. Job said, I've esteemed his words more than my necessary food. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What do you say about God's commandments? Are they worth your time? Are they sweeter than honey to you? Are they more than precious gold to you? I pray that we all will love God's word more like the man in Psalm 1. And that we will delight in the law of the Lord more and more. That we might be better servants to the Lord and be more pleasing to him. The Bible. Learn it, love it, and live it. That we may praise our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. I like that. The three L's. Something you can hang on to and uh, hopefully put into practice. I want to begin by asking you a question this morning. Are you running the race of the Christian life to win? Or are you just running? Most of us have run a race at some time in our life. Probably in grade school, you went out and had a 50-yard dash, perhaps a mile run in, in high school. You all know what a race is about. You all line up at the, at the starting line. And you hear the gun go off or the whistle blow, and you run down for a certain period of distance to cross the finish line. And someone wins. The whole goal is to run fast enough to win, to be the first one across the line. Many of us will never run another race in our life. At least I hope not. I'm not ready to. I don't want to. But you know, we all are in a race this day. Right. We are in the race of the Christian life. Amen. Are you running to win? Or are you just running? We're all going to run. Every one of us. We're running. Are we running to win? The Apostle Paul often likened the Christian life to running a long-distance race. You know, he had races in those days. The Greeks had their Olympics, even as we have today. And he was familiar with the, the city athletes and the, and the races, the various events of the Olympics. And he likened the Christian life to a long-distance race. He saw the similarities because the Christian life and a long-distance race require the same kind of diligence, effort, and consistency over time to win and be successful. Right. Paul ran that race. He was successful. He won his race. He said in Second Timothy 4, 7-8, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. When you think about his course... It was significant. That was not a 100-meter dash. That was a marathon. Paul had finished his course. He finished his race well. He won his race. If you think about the 25 to 30 years of ministry among the Gentiles, where he preached the gospel to them consistently over time without fail, he won his race. He finished his course. Are we going to finish our course? Are we going to run the race that the Lord has called us to? And are we going to run 
to win? That's my question today to you. Are we running to win? Or are we just running? Are we just putting in time? We're all in the race. Are we running to win? Paul could say, in going on there, in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8, I have finished my course, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Paul was not the only winner. The thing about this race is, we can all be winners. There is not just one winner. We can all be winners. But are we, run, are we running the race to win? Is that our objective? Are we putting our all into it? Are we dedicated? Are we zealous? Are we fervent to win the race of the Christian life? Are we doing everything that we can to serve Jesus Christ with all that we have, to be found of him in righteousness when he comes and calls us home? In 1 Corinthians 9.24, Paul said, turn to that passage, please. 1 Corinthians 9.24. It gives us an idea of how Paul ran the race, what his focus was, how dedicated he was to that end. 1 Corinthians 9.24, we read, and going on to the end of the chapter, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beeth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul used everything he could to live to run that race effectively for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. But the focus here on in verse 24 is that he said they which run the race run all everybody runs in a in a physical race in a natural race here in this world only one receives the the crown there. But he wants us to run that we may obtain. Our focus should be on running to win. We should want to run to win. Right. If we're just running We're not doing the job right. We want to run to win. Our effort should be toward winning, to be found in Christ without spot, blameless before him, and serving him well in this life. The Apostle Paul gave us a number of guidelines for how we can run the race effectively. That's the whole goal. That's how we win, by running effectively. Let's turn, please, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He gives us some help in knowing what we should do to be able to run that race effectively. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest he be wearied and faint in your minds. There in the middle of that first verse, 
Hebrews 12.1, Paul says we must lay aside every weight. If we want to run effectively, we must lay aside every weight. What is a weight? If you think about running a long-distance race, you realize that long-distance runners have the lightest of equipment. They have very light shoes. They have very light garments. And they don't carry even water with them. They are light. They have, they're lean. They're mean. And they're ready to run that race to get the, from point A to point B as quickly as possible. They have taken all the weight off their body so they can run effectively. For us... In the Christian life, what are the weights that do beset us? What are the weights that encumber us, that hold us back from being what we should be? Well, weights can be anything. They can be hobbies. They can be jobs. They can be any responsibility that we might have, which normally is a good thing, but they can be duties that might restrict us if we're spending too much time in them. How much time are you spending in the various aspects of your life? Have they become a weight to hold us back from the time that we can spend in seeking first the kingdom of God more effectively? That's the question we want to ask ourselves. What are the weights of our life? We all have those weights. Are those weights holding us back from being the best runner that we can be for Jesus Christ, for seeking his kingdom, for loving him and serving him and his children and his church in this world? We must also lay aside the sin which does so easily beset us. Now, that's pretty obvious, but you know what? We all have sins that hold us down. We all have our favorite, if you want to say it that way, favorite sins that beset us. What are yours? We all have those sins that we stumble into and that oftentimes trip us up. We need to take every effort that we can to put those aside to fight those off, to hold them back, to not let them rule our lives that we might be able to run our, our race for Christ more effectively. Even the long-distance run- runner, he gets out there, and if he starts before the gun, he's disqualified. He's out of the race. If he goes off the course, he's disqualified. If he takes drugs, he's disqualified. There's various ways that a long-distance runner can be disqualified, and we can disqualify ourselves, in a sense, by not running to win if we are letting sin encompass us. Sin encumber us and hold us back from running our race effectively. We also see here in Hebrews 12, 2, that we must run with patience. Patience. You know, a 100-meter dash does not require patience, The sprint's over in 10 seconds, but a marathon runner has to have some patience or consistency in running. If he sprints out fast in the first couple miles and burns out, he's going to see other runners pass him by because he's all done. He has to have consistency, patience over time. And so we need the patience and consistency to run our race our entire life. It's a lifelong pursuit, racing for the Christian life, racing for the Lord Jesus Christ, holding up his name, supporting his ideals and his truth in the Bible. We must run with patience the race that is set before us. And we must focus on the prize. You know, so oftentimes we go through life and we don't keep the end goal in mind. We don't. We live one day at a time. 
And that's fine. The Bible tells us to do that. But we yet must look ahead and see the purpose for which we are racing. Are we keeping that end focus in mind? Are we keeping eternal things in view every day that we live for Jesus Christ? That is our goal. Our goal is to be found in him without spot. Our goal is eternal things and to be found when he comes and calls us home to be righteous before him and to be having that flame of faith burning in our hearts. We must keep that focus on the prize. In Hebrews 11.24, just across the page, we read about Moses. And we see that in verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, he was 40 years old at that time, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. He understood the weighting of the two rewards. He knew the reward of eternal things that Christ would offer was much greater than all that he had there in Egypt. And believe me, he had it all. There's no man in the Bible who gave up more than Moses did there in Egypt. He had all the privilege, position, and prosperity of Egypt at his beck and call. And he gave it all up because he knew that the eternal riches of Christ were far greater than what he had there in Egypt. But he kept that focus on the final prize. And so we too, as we run the Christian life, we must remember that we are working toward an eternal goal in mind, that is of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, of being found in him without spot, and of being his children and worshiping and glorying in him for all eternity. That is our focus. So I ask you again, are you running the race of the Christian life to win, or are you just running? Are you consistently honoring, loving, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole life? What weights or sins are holding you back from running more effectively? Are you keeping your eyes on the prize of hearing, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I pray this morning that the Lord Jesus Christ by his Spirit will enable each one of us to be more focused, more zealous, more consistent in running the race of the Christian life. I'm getting organized here. Y'all can turn to 1 John uh, 3. My topic today that I want to talk about is just the depths and the the greatness of the love and the goodness of God towards us. I know, and at least I hope we all already know that, but I would just hope that we can, that I can exhort you to maybe appreciate it a little more at this time and just to see um, how much the Lord really loves us, the tenderness and the, the intimacy that he, that he uh, deals with us with. Amen. He has shown me that greatly in my life in recent weeks, and um, so he's put on my heart. Um, like I said, my topic is the goodness of God. But before I start there, I want us to think of it. I want us to think about this as, as we talk about the goodness of God. You know, the Lord is is awesome beyond words. We can't describe it. 
David, I was trying to think of how to describe the Lord, and I've been listening to uh, Alexander Scorby a lot before we go to bed, me and Deborah. Uh, I, a lot of times I've been turning to Job 34, through or whatever it is, through the end of Job, where Elihu starts to speak right. and talk about the greatness, and then God himself shows up and talks about his greatness. Amen. And that's about, just, just go home and read that, I think it would help you more than anything else to understand that. The fact is, we can never understand the goodness of God because, right. as David says in Psalms 145.3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Um, so we serve that awesome God. Who is that awesome? Who is the creator of all things. He's the creator of heaven and earth and all that therein, and therein is. And for that reason, and that reason alone, he demands our worship, our respect, our honor, our praise, and everything else. For no other reason except for the fact that he is God. That's enough. And also, we look at ourselves and what we are and how we rebelled against that great God and the wickedness of our hearts. And I know the wickedness of mine. And I can, for that reason, I can know that that y'all are no different. And what we deserve in light of that is to be on this earth is to be crushed into dust and to spend an eternity in hell for that's what we deserve. That's right. But then just I don't want to focus on that right now. What I want to focus on is the goodness of God. First um, John three one very familiar chat, uh, verse to y'all. Behold. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Amen. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. I want to look at this. The greatest thing that we can that, that the Lord has done for us is called us sons of God. Amen. That's enough. That's if we talked about earlier. That's a whole lot more than we deserve. And that is enough that if he never did anything else for us. That he would be worthy of us sitting up here every single minute of our life and talking about how good he is. Right. But what I want to talk about is how he takes that to a, such a deeper, deeper level and to such a personal, intimate level and how he just rewards us and how we are so undeserving. But yet he continues to do it. And I want to look at this from a little different angle, maybe than than what you might think. But. You know, when you start thinking about the goodness of God, you can go in about six million different directions. And I've thought about probably three million of them since I knew I was going to do this. But I want to turn to Malachi 3, 16. Once again, another familiar verse. And I just want to go, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to kind of dissect a little bit. And I'm going to tell you all a little thing, kind of what's happened in my life the last few weeks, months, whatever. Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Here's my point. Our great God in heaven loves us so much, and I'm going to, I'm going to go through this, that he, he causes us to do something, gives us great pleasure in doing it, and then rewards us for doing it. And my question is, to you would be, um, 
What manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us? Right. It's unsearchable. First of all, I want to say this first of all. I don't want anybody to get confused. I am very well understand that we have responsibilities that we have to carry, that we have to go through, and that we have to do. Probably more than anybody in this church, I stand here and I know the great, the difference between a man than that obeys the commandments of God and a man that doesn't. I know the rewards of the one that does, and I know the punishment of the one that doesn't. But that's not what I want to focus on today, because I hope, I hope y'all are all aware of that. I know you all are. The Lord, okay, first of all, we're here because we love the Lord. I'm hoping that's why everybody's here. Amen. And that's where it all starts. Well, you know, why do you love the Lord? Well, according to 1 John 4.19, we loved him because he first loved us. Right. Okay. So how did you even get to where you could love the Lord? How did it even come? And I know we all know this, but Stephen said, I just want to, we can't go over it too much. How did you get to where you love the Lord? Ephesians 2.1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So the Lord quickens us. The Lord causes us to love him because causes us to love him because he first loved us. So then we got, like we said, we got responsibilities that we got to do. We got commandments we got to obey. We got to fear the Lord. We got to trust the Lord. We got to um, walk the way he tells us to walk. But it also says, I also know, too, that from experience and for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. This is first John five, three. Right. And his commandments are not grievous. And if you walk and if you seek the Lord and, and, and search him out and draw nigh to him, as I'm fixing to touch on, you'll find out that his commandments are not grievous. But they are wonderful. And uh, so anyway, so the Lord has quickened us. The Lord has caused us to love him. So then, like I said, we got those things to do. So what happens? The Lord convicts us of to serve him and to search him and to seek him out. So then we start doing that. And if we don't do that, the Lord, the Lord chastens us. And it's chasten, chast, chastisement in love. For whom the Lord loveth, he, ch- he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So either the Lord will convict you and you will obey that conviction and seek him. Or he'll chasten you and cause you to obey him and seek him. And if he chastens you and you don't obey him and seek him, then you're... Either not his, or you're heading for a life of misery and pain. Welcome, you know, go read about Lot. You're headed, if he chastens you and you don't listen, you're heading for a life of, a life like Samson of death and suicide, and a life of, uh, like Lot of incest and, and, and losing your family. So, I, you know, I would suggest you listen to the chastening of the Lord. But anyway, then you draw nigh to God. His word says in, uh, was it James 4? 4-4, four, four, he tells us, or 4-8, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Yeah. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hands, you double-minded. Draw nigh to God, and he right. will draw nigh to you. Right. I have went through a personal experience in my life where I had quenched the Spirit in my life. I had not served the Lord as I should have. I wasn't rebelling and sin in the world, but the cares of this world, job, work, I mean, job, school, other things, had overwhelmed me, and the Word of God got put to the side. The Lord convicted me. He chastened me a little bit and caused me to re-examine some things to get my life right. 
I drew, but I started to draw nigh to the Lord. Started reading my Bible with my wife every day, every morning, every night. Started praying every morning. I started seeking the Lord. Started seeking fellowship with the brethren. I was drawing nigh to God. And then comes the good part. You can't outgive God. You draw nigh to Him, He's going to draw nigh to you, big time. And so what happens when you start drawing nigh to God? He's going to draw nigh to you. So then you start wanting to spend time with the brethren. You start wanting to talk with the God. You start having great joy and pleasure and fulfillment in the Lord in these things. So then you want to do it more. So then you get in a contest with the Lord. Oh, I'm going to outgive you. I'm going to give more than he's going to give more. And it's just a, as, as I've heard many people say, it's a win, 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 win situation. And you get and the Lord fills you instead of being quenched. He fills you with a great joy and fulfillment and love and, and desire to to seek him. And um, as that happens. You begin to speak often one to another. And so as you listen to the Lord and you speak about him and talk about him, he starts to speak to speak and talk about you. And he has somebody or does himself. He has somebody write a book of remembrance about you and calls you his jewel and does great things for you because you took pleasure in him. Because he takes pleasure in the prosperity of his servants. As Job, as uh, the psalmist said in in, the in the book of Psalms. And I think about, I, I look over here just to the other side of this, in Malachi, where it's 310, where it says, and I know this is talking about a little different. It says, bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, and there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. As I believe it was Brother Stephen said earlier, now I know that's what that, that is talking about, Material things right there, but if, if when you see the word, you know, prosper and blessings in the Bible and, and your focus is on material things, not that that's not, not that we don't desire that to a certain degree, but if that's your focus, then, then there's, there's, then we need to examine ourselves there. Right. But our focus is on that He's going to fill you with more of His Spirit and more of a love where you're over, you're overcome with it. And all you want to do is, is seek the Lord, talk about the Lord, serve the Lord. You take great pleasure. There's not a football game or a golf contest or whatever it is that you find pleasure of in this world that can touch the joy, that peace that he gives you that surpasses understanding. Amen. That in this world that we live in, it's an evil world that we live in with troublesome times. And we got precious promises. Um, seek you first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Right. You know, we have, we have nothing to fear. I love, I got it written down here. I knew I was going to end up getting on this. In this time, in this times that we live in, we don't know what's going to happen. But in Psalms 33, 18, 19, David says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Amen. No matter what is going to happen, we are going to be satisfied. We are going to be. We got that peace which surpasses understanding. I'm going to slow down here before I babble on too much, but. I just want to let you, I just want to, my point is this, that God is so good. The more that we try to give to him, the more he gives to us. And he gives us credit. I think of David, and I'm going to close with this. I think of David as the, 
as the Lord, as he decided he was going to build a house for the Lord. Well, we all know that that was that the Lord put that in David's heart to do that or he would not have done it. And then the Lord rewards David for doing it. He looks down at David and, and y'all know the story. But, you know, he's like, you want to build me a house? You know, I never asked Moses or, jo- or, or uh, Joshua or, or any of the other leaders of Israel, the, the, the prophets or the justice to build. You want to build me a house? He says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And your house is going to stand forever. And your son is going to reign in an eternal kingdom forever. And David was greatly blessed for doing. This is what I'm trying to get. I'm not doing a very good job, probably, but this is what I'm trying to get through. Our God is so good and he is so awesome that he blesses us and he rewards us for doing the things that he causes us to do. That's the point that I want to get across. That is how good he is. If we will keep his commandments and we will and we will walk in his ways and his commandments are not grievous, then he will bless us exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever think to ask or hope. And I want to read one more scripture real quick and I promise I'm closing. It's Psalm 107. Y'all can turn there. Which has become my favorite psalm, as most of y'all probably know. And by knowing this, and by understanding this, that the Lord is that good to us, and not, not only did He call us to be sons and have a, and be heirs of God and join heirs with Christ Jesus, which is of its own more than we could ever hope to imagine, but yet He still goes and touches us with such an intimacy and such a depth of love while we're here in this earth. And the thing that I hope that that you can take out of this, and that the Lord will. We'll we'll put in your hearts. I I know I'm not a good speaker, but I hope that the Lord can take his word. I know that the Lord can take his word and put it in your hearts, no matter how bad of a job I do. I'm going to start at Psalm 17. 107, 17. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. We've all been fools at one time or another in our lives. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. I know I, I've, I've been there before. Then they cried, this wicked, evil, foolish, rebellious people. If we could we could look at this, that Israel is being that or we can look at ourselves. They cry unto the Lord in their trouble and saveth and and he saveth them out of their distresses. Amen. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Here's what I want y'all to take out of this. Right. As David almost sounds like he's in pain when he says that, is this. When you, if you leave here, this is what I want you to leave here with. For my talking this morning. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. That's what I want you to take from this. Is that the Lord is good beyond our measure. Beyond measure beyond our wildest thoughts and that may we just praise him among each other among others in our bedchambers wherever may we praise him constantly for his goodness right amen 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 and the lord inspired paul to write many of his epistles when he was writing them he would usually start with an exhortation Go on with some encouragement, and then somewhere in the middle there, he would just start praising the Lord for his goodness. Right. And then we'd get back to an exhortation. And I feel that's the way that the, sermon, the uh, sermons today have gone so far, the, the, speaks, the speakings. We had a, a great exhortation about the Word of God and what it should mean to us. 
We moved into some encouragement about the race that we have set before us. We just heard how good the Lord is and how good he's been to us. And I'd like to continue with some exhortation about living life one day at a time. This has been something that I've been thinking about for a little while, but it really came to me on a comment that I heard that's used often and flipped about as we are burdened by what might, set, what we might be set before us. And the comment is, I just don't know where to start. And when, you, when we have something before us, whether it be the race that we have before us, whether it be godly child training or anything else, the fear is, where do we start? Well, we start one day at a time. So lend me your ears for a moment, and I would like to speak to you on this. The word days used almost 2,000 times in the Bible, and it's almost always used as a period of time that we are to live our lives. Many times it's the Lord using the day that he created to encourage us as to how we ought to live. It's important that you don't think this is undoing the fact that we are to have godly forethought and planning. We know that to be true. We also know that we are to foresee the evil and hide ourselves, and sometimes that takes looking beyond a day. But having said that, let's look at a day. I'd like to do this in two parts. I'd like to show you why this is important, and then I'd like to show you how we can put this into practice. If you will, turn with me to Matthew six thirty-four for my theme text that I hope we can take with us more than anything else, this text. The devil... One of his ways to discourage Christians is to have you think beyond a day. He wants you to think about your life. He wants you to think about your children's lives. He wants you to think about years in advance. That is ungodly. We are to think about things one day at a time and attack projects one day at a time. Matthew 6.34, at the end of an encouragement about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus gives us this reminder and this instruction. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. There is more than enough each and every day to keep us busy trying to serve the Lord. To to get distracted thinking about tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, the rest of your lives is foolish, and it will only eventually wear you down to where you can't even do it one day at a time. The Lord knows what we can handle. That's why he created days. There's an evening and a day, and that was the first day. And then there was an evening and a day, and he knows that only one day at a time is what we can do. And Matthew 6, in teaching us how to pray, He tells us and instructs us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because if he gives us two days, as we find out by reading back in the Old Testament with the Israelites, if you have more than that one day, you start to get greedy and you think that you've done something for yourself. Don't do it. We have to do this one day at a time. Jesus taught us in Luke 9.23, when he was explaining what the Christian walk was like, he tells us to take up our cross daily. Because if you try to take up your cross for an entire week in one day, you can't do it. If you try to resist the devil for the rest of your life in one day, you can't do it. You can only stand against the devil one day at a time. David uses the the time frame of a day many times throughout the Psalms. He talks about what he does in a day. He talks about how he 
loves the Lord in a day. We heard that from Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation day and night. We know from Ephesians 5, 16 that we are to redeem the time that we have left. That's one day at a time. You can't get all the years from before any more than one day at a time. We know from this passage, Matthew 6:34, that one day is more than enough to get us started. With what we've heard so far today, and surely what we will hear in the second assembly, the only way to put these things into practice is to start one day at a time. We, we can't run the entire race too quickly. We have to do it one day at a time. Right. When I used to run when I was younger, my favorite words of encouragement to the others that I used to run with was take the next step. Because when you're halfway through a race and all you can think about is how tired you are and how far you have to go, you want to quit. And so my encouragement to them was always take the next step. Take the next step. Because enough of those steps, you'll get to the finish line. Right. And since we're not in a hundred yard dash, as we heard, we're in a marathon. You really need to think about each step. Because halfway through a marathon is 13.1 miles, and that's a long way. And when you've got that much further to go, you have to calm down and think about the next step, the next step, over and over and over. We've heard from our pastor, and we all know it to be true, that a successful life is done with successful days strung together. One day at a time, lived successfully, put together, equals a successful life. Consistent, productive days get you so much further than sudden bursts of energy that fade out. And glorious things of thee are spoken. One of the verses says, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. That should not be said of Christians. They should see a consistent daily walk with the Lord. That's the why. I hope I've established that. Let's go to the how and see if we can't put some of this into practice. What's a successful day look like? David says that he thought about the Lord four times in the morning, in the afternoon, and evening as he walked by the way. Daniel prayed three times a day, consistently enough that the only thing that those looking to find some fault against him could find is that they knew he was going to be praying three times a day. We heard about the righteous man from Psalm 1. Once again, day and night, he meditated on God's word. A sermon that convicted me probably somewhere close to five or six years ago and has been at the forefront of my thought many times when I'm living the way I should is giving the Lord 10% of your day. When 1,440 minutes are in a day, 10% is only 15 minutes a day. Can we sacrifice 15 minutes at least to make sure that we're living day by day? Some other ways to make sure we're putting this into practice is not getting discouraged thinking about the future. Me being somewhat of a melancholy and knowing some of you are the same way, we start thinking about, well, how are we going to, how are we going to have godly children later in life? I'll tell you exactly how you can do it. By God's word, you can do it one day at a time. Right. You can open a passage of scripture, you can say a prayer, and you can do it one day at a time, and over time, you will have godly children. That's how it's done. Right. We know from several passages that being content helps you live one day at a time. We hear, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The next verse goes on and tells us therewith to be content with the things that we have. By, by being content, you can take on each day.
We know from God's word, and many of you know this passage by heart, let not the sun go down upon thy wrath. Another way to have a successful day is to make sure that each night before you go to bed, you have no wrath in your heart. For wrath in your heart when you go to bed undoes just about everything that you may have accomplished that day. And surely you'll wake up with that wrath still in your heart and you'll ruin another day. So let's make sure we don't go to bed with any wrath on us. Some practical ways to make sure that you have a successful day. And this comes from a sermon that our pastor preached to us around the same time as the 10% that I earlier mentioned is to do things like plan. Nothing gets done without a plan. To set aside time the night before to think about what you want to accomplish the next day is the way to do it. Anybody that deals with much throughout a day in their business knows the only way to get a lot done is to have a a forethought plan. Make lists. Something that my wife and I have tried to do over the years and at times done better than others, but one of the things we've been able to do to accomplish much is to make a list of things you want to get done. Falls right in line with planning. Setting daily goals so that you can go back and look at days before to see what you were able to accomplish is, is great because if, if you finish a day and look back and don't re- realize what you've accomplished, then you're never going to hit anything. If you don't aim at anything, you can't hit anything. So set some goals because when you accomplish them, it gives you the strength to move on to the next day. Set more goals and accomplish those as well. Right. Everything happens by starting one day at a time. I mentioned child training, a godly marriage, daily Bible reading habits. Um, anything in your life that you can think about starts by taking the first step. And the first step is today. What can you do today to make today successful? And then tomorrow, you can worry about tomorrow. Because as we've read, sufficient unto each day is the evil thereof. How are we going to accomplish the conviction that, that sets in our hearts that the Lord gives us? We're going to do it one day at a time. And it's the only way it's going to get accomplished. You can't live a godly life all today. You can live a godly day today, and then you can do it again tomorrow, and you can do that enough times in a row that when your day comes to go home, you can say you have fought a good fight, you have kept the faith. Right. If you remember nothing else, remember take no thought for the morrow. It's not worth spending the mental energy to even get into tomorrow. Save that energy to focus on what you can do today. Let's have successful days and in time, a successful life. Yeah.